If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. You know the crack. We're trying to explain economics, make it more comprehensible, make it that little bit more relevant. And John, today we're going to be talking about the metaverse. And I believe your conclusion is bring back religion. <laughs> well, no, I think you, you, you kind of picked Did me I up jump wrong. the gun there a yeah, little bit? Just slightly, just slightly. Uh, we were talking earlier about what the metaverse and the internet and technology does to you is that you're always on, always on. There's no getting away from it. You're always being sold to or upsold or whatever. And it's just funny. I was, you know, there was a debate recently about the Angelus. Now, for those who don't listen to Irish broadcasting, the Angelus is a minute of, Church bells. Church bells, yeah. And the whole idea of it is just a moment of reflection. But the modern society we live in reject it as a kind of a a throwback to the old religious days. But actually, it does have a purpose. It allows one to take a moment to oneself, breathe, and switch off a little bit. Can I tell you something about the Angelus when John and I were teenagers? When John used to buy... A small five spot of of red lev. Was it black lev or red? Oh, no, you'd be a blonde. Remember blonde. those blonde. Anyway, so we'd sit and we'd smoke a joint. And we'd probably be in my house or John's house. And the Angelus would come on. <laughs> and we'd and go, I love this tune. <laughs> a, we'd love this tune. But then John would say to me halfway through the contemplation of the Angelus before our mothers came home. <laughs> To make the tea around six o'clock, John say, "How many dongs was that? Sixteen or seventeen dogs? It's eighteen dogs. Is it eighteen dogs? Always eighteen. We dongs. could never get a wee rose. Yeah. Was it fourteen? As time slowed down, <laughs> as concepts of the universe and the metaverse <laughs> began, was it, was I on eleven or twelve there? I can't remember. <laughs> and then, of course, what happens when you're that way inclined is your counting ability." tends to go one, two, three, four, five, five to ten. And then for some reason you count five again. 
and suddenly you're, I thought it was 14 dongs, but there yeah, you go. No, it's anyway, 18. We are going to talk about the metaverse, not the Angelus, but we might conclude that the thing about the Angelus and all those notions of contemplation are the willingness and the entitlement to opt out, to actually take a break, yes. to be absent from. And that's the whole point of it. Now, what interests me this week is over the last seven days, we've had three things that have fascinated me, John. The first is that Microsoft bought a company called Activision, which makes all the games that JM plays, <laughs> for about $70 billion, a yeah. gaming thing. Then the other one was the NFTs, which you talked about the other week. Yes. Right? And the third thing was the notion, a bit like the Angels, of the Sunday trading. Because I was thinking, imagine the pandemic was over. The government called the end of the pandemic last Saturday, right? Yeah. And imagine this was in the 1970s, where they called the end of the pandemic, but nothing could open on the Sunday. Yeah. So they said, yeah. we're all open, but you can't go out anywhere. And what would that have done? These are the things that went through my head. But the first thing is the metaverse, right? What is it? And what's the connection between these three ideas? The connection is some notion that companies, corporations want to buy everything we do, gaming, shopping, all that sort of idea, because the metaverse, as articulated by Mark Zuckerberg, will be this bizarre connection between our real lives and some sort of virtual world that Facebook is going to negotiate and mediate over the course of the next four or five years. And it's a fusion of our real and our online self. Now, yeah. for us, this is really weird. Yeah. But imagine what's going through the heads of people at Facebook. They believe that at a certain stage with a combination of those weird glasses, which- Oh yeah, well, nobody, they never worked. Nobody who's ever chatted up or being chatted up <laughs> has ever worn ghoul glasses, right? You think about it. Yeah. Imagine you walk into a part of the house going, yeah. and say, You're going, Jays. Who's the Egypt with the glasses, <laughs> right? But it is a new world, and we're trying to get our heads around it because it's very, lots of companies are betting on it. But do you know what? I mean, the, the, that whole idea and the whole concept that you just mentioned there about a company owning your kind of life, owning your attention, owning your attention, but for a lifespan. Yeah. is nothing new. I mean, you had companies, you have companies like Disney and Coke and all the rest. Disney is a great example where they hook you in and the idea was that they, they hook John you in. John was quite like Snow White. And I, I did, actually. You did, I know. No, I but I, I love, I do genuinely love all those old animations and stuff, but they do hook you in at a, at a young stage, but they also provided content for at pretty much every stage of your life. Now look at them with Disney Plus, you know, pushing out stuff on the Beatles and Tommy and Pamela and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it is about... Tommy oh, and Pamela from Dunleary? Or? No, Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson. You know, there's a new thing coming out. Oh, on really? That. I didn't know. Actually, on the <laughs> Beatles, on the Beatles... Rough. It was a great article written by Janan Ganesh, who writes in the FT, one of mm. the best journalists writing at the moment. Yeah. And he wrote a fantastic piece about the tragedy of Beatlemania and how, in actual fact, we are hostages of the Beatles. What did he mean by that? But he meant that he meant that this obsession with our generation, not just us, but much older than us, 
going back to this touchstone that this was fantastic and this was brilliant and this was unbelievably groundbreaking. And he makes the point is it's really good that the Beatles broke up because they'd be making really shit stuff now. They were still knocking Probably. around. Yeah. But also that nostalgia, the notion of nostalgia elbows out lots of creativity and you have to go back to a certain thing. I thought it was really interesting. He's making the point that, yes, the Beatles were fantastically innovative for the 1960s as being more or less the first really band that came through, a guitar band, etc. But he's saying that in a way, our generation, and certainly older than us, obsession with the Beatles has sort of eclipsed lots of other things. It's a fascinating article. We'll go back to it. And it I think, eclipsed other stuff such well, he's as just fast. saying He's just what? saying that, you know, in actual fact, they weren't that good. And the notion that we were now going back to music that was made 50 years ago is the very antithesis to progress. And in previous generations, previous generations' memories were never seen on TV. So our parents, our grandparents might have okay. had memories, right? Okay, I got but you. they were actually designed to and kept in the past. Whereas now we've got this ability to actually take our memories and project them forward and judge the present by virtue of the past. And the way he's saying is that progress needs to leave things in the past and move on. Mm. And I thought it was quite an interesting article. Let us get back to the metaverse. Okay. I could debate that one with you about the Beatles being not very good because they, their whole point was that they did write great songs and all the rest, and they had a whole load of nonsense. But it was the very point that they were the Shrumpterian disruptors of their day. And what he's saying is, had they were, what he's saying is, it's a good job they that Yoko Ono was such a weirdo and broke them up because Schumpeter would have broken them up anyway because they wouldn't have produced anything good. Anyway, let's go back. So the idea of the metaverse, right, intrigues me because if Zuckerberg is right and people don't like him, but he's been right about a lot of things. Mm. He's been right about Facebook. He created this extraordinary change. And what they're saying is we're moving to this third phase of the internet. So the first phase of the internet was what they call Internet 1.0, was read-only. So it was like kind of a library. Yeah. You'd go and say, I yeah. want to read something. Yeah. But there was no interaction. It was very. It was a flat face. You searched, yeah. you read. Design poor as well. Yeah. The second phase of the Internet, the Zuckerberg phase, is this social media, the idea of community. And it was oh, dynamic. Yeah. I mean, that was the first time you could actually, you know, for instance, book a flight by putting in data and stuff coming back. So it was it was a dynamic yeah. interaction. Unless you're a travel agent, in which case it was a brutal thing, right? And then this idea of metaverse, internet three, which they call it, okay, is this idea of ownership, that you create stuff online, your NFTs, all these things, yeah. that you become a major participant. But for the companies, what the added really attraction for this is that you're always there. And you create this virtual presence, which is your person online. Now, for example, for us, this is really quite unusual, right? Mm. Can imagine from our parents how unusual it is. And can imagine not just our kids, but grandkids now who are going to live in a world where, for example, they will have an online personality, an online presence. Yeah. And that person will be different to them Right? It's, I mean, we're, we're of the generation, by the way, if you haven't listened to us before, who remember uh, telephones in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
yeah. there was a place for the telephone. Yes, and it was. was in the really cold hall. It was always really cold. So the telephones in our day were beside the front door, which were always kind of leaky in Ireland. So if there was ever like wind or rain, right, it was cold. Yeah. And do you remember your mother's telephone voice? Yes. Oh, yeah. There my was always had, a... My mother said, 80492. It was like this posh voice. It was a little the, song. That almost. being on the telephone was a different experience, right? And it was very distinct. So not only did you not display yourself on the telephone, but you created this new elocution person on yeah, the telephone. Yeah. So imagine now, only in 40 <laughs> Sorry, years... I was just thinking... I don't know if that's relevant at all. But I was just thinking that all the, relevant, John. The, the thing about the, the the telephone in the hall is because you didn't have mobile phones, and if you met somebody and you couldn't swap numbers and stuff like in your mobile phone, so you'd get the home phone. So then you'd have to build up the. Oh yes, you're right. Talk you, to the ma. Talk to the ma, and you'd have to build up the confidence first of all to pick up the phone in the hall. Hoping that nobody else in the house is listening, but of course they are. Everyone's listening, and, yeah. And you're trying to make your first kind of your play <laughs> yeah. for 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 the, the girl. And you, hello, can I speak to uh, Belinda, please? <laughs> and you'd have to go. And then her ma would say, "Her name's not Belinda. She gives the name Belinda's to fellas she really doesn't fancy. Her name is Mary. Yeah, she's still not in. And she won't be in for the next week. Yeah, that was our... Sorry, anyway, sorry. That was our 1980s equivalent of sexting, by the way. Yes, it was. And it was always with a cold sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's go back to the metaverse, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea of the morality of this new internet intrigues me. And one of the reasons it intrigues me is because part of me just thinks the metaverse would be nothing more than a corporate shakedown, that everybody will become a surf to a corporate franchise. And they'll be always selling, always advertising, having our attention. And then the question is, what type of people will build and embrace an online? So if you imagine your online is the best version of yourself, in the best version of your life. Yeah, yeah. That's the what you're trying to create. So who creates the best version of themselves and the best version of their lives? Are they the people whose lives and perceptions of themselves are going okay? Or are they the people who feel that their lives are not quite what they imagine them to be and the person they are is not quite who they imagine them or wanted themselves to be? So it seems to me there's a bias which the people who will embrace the metaverse are the very people who are trying to create a parallel universe, a parallel version of themselves, mm. because they feel that they haven't done well in real life. So obviously then the attraction to create a new life is much greater. Because if you're getting on well with your life, you're kind of happy with the way things are going. So will it be the case, and this is the morality of it, that the metaverse creates the opportunity for people to create a second life for themselves. But the type of people who really want to create a second life are the people whose real life isn't going very well. And therefore, it's this winners versus losers in life. I hate these expressions, but there are winners in life. There are. There are clearly people who've done well. And there are losers, and I don't mean that you're a loser, people who have actually not done very well. And if the metaverse appeals to them, we will see corporates advertising stuff 
to the people who least can afford it, but who are much more gullible. And that really freaks me out. And there's an amazing website. Well, it's not a subwebs. It's a Substack column, yeah. right? Called the Convivial Life, right? By an American called Michael Sacasas, and he writes about this idea of morality and technology, and where we go with them, and how we bridge them, and the dilemmas, the existential and philosophical dilemmas presented. So I think we should go and talk to him because he is the guy that a lot of the tech folk listen to, because somewhere deep within their Idea. So you've two types of tech folk. Of course, you've got the investors who are piling in right now into all sorts of tech investments, right? They are the people who really want us to be always on, to be sold to, right? Mm. They're the people who say, great, 24-7, online, virtual reality, etc. That's cool because we're going to make money. But the moralists, the people who are mor morally worried about it, are the people for whom the very enthusiasm that the investors are seduced by mm. is the dilemma that the moralists are scared by. And I think Michael is one of these people who straddles the difference between the morality and the technology. So let's go to Florida and talk to Michael Sacasas. Michael, what I'm reading from you, one of, your, what, one of the things that drives you is the morality of technology. Can you explain that to me? this underlying philosophy that you, I, I read in the convivial society of the morality of technology. Yeah, and in fact, I, I think I would say that I got interested in understanding technology uh, because I was interested in the sort of person it might make of me and of, of our society. So there are the personal level effects or societal effects. I, I, I would say that my understanding of, of, of who we are uh, morally and ethically is built upon a view of the moral life as a product of habits, habits that become inclinations, inclinations that become character, et cetera. And so it's a it's an old understanding of, of the moral life, virtue, a virtue ethic understanding of moral life. And, and I thought, well, what engenders more habits in us than our use of our tools? Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which our tools interface with us in the world. They shape our perception. They shape our understanding of the self. The comments that your children made were very perceptive as to the way in which there are, there are habits of anxiety, a different way of understanding the self, a, a divide from the immediacy of lived experience that enters into our, our own experience of the world when it's mediated through smartphones. And so these questions, questions of this sort, are the ones that, that became really interesting to me. It seems to me the case that an increasing number of people, like your own children, are becoming more sensitive, more attuned to the fact that our tools are not just these neutral devices that do our bidding and that we always use for good and ends where we gain efficiency or gain new conveniences, but that there's there's something else that goes on uh, depending on the particular tool or technology or system that can have many profound consequences. So, and in this regard, I'm just echoing and trying to bring to the forefront the work of thinkers that I'm much indebted to. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, my newsletter is named after the work of uh, Yvonne Illich, uh, Jacques Ellul is another, and, and, and they've under, they understood this, I think, a lot earlier than many of us did. And so, yes, I, I think this is, this is my concern. What sort of people are we becoming? What sort of society are we becoming as a consequence of the use of our, of our tools? And, and, and can we become more thoughtful about this? Can we become more discerning? And in terms of your own thinking, where is that leading you? Because I, I was reading something the other day, and it's, it's, not, it's not totally dissimilar. It was about the discovery of eyeglasses uh, in the 13th century mm -hmm. and how 
The discovery of glasses managed to prolong the work of the artisan because typically we lose our sight uh, at maybe 40, 45, for another 20 years in Florence and Venice. And this gave them a massive productivity leap uh, mm. advantage over their competitors. But it also said that it led to precision tools and it led to the invention of the precise clock. And the clock then changed the way we live with time. And, it, you know, okay. so economists like me say, oh, that was great. And productivity went up and we could measure things and people could be structured and they could be organized. And before you know it, you have the industrial revolution and factories and away we go, right? That's the economist view. But the moral philosopher, your view would be, well, hold on a second. By changing the tool, the precise tool, the clock, corralled humans into a world where every hour was measured. And rather than being creatures who lived by the sun and the moon and the stars, we became creatures who lived by the clock. And this tool profoundly changed us. Is that the sort of way we should be looking at this technology? Right. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And it should be quick to say, so I, I'm not anti-technology. I feel sometimes okay. I need to okay. clarify <laughs> that, right? <laughs> and technology has, has done much good. I actually, um, you know, I'm myopic and, and, and needed glasses when I was I think, six years old. So so my, my whole life, right, would have been greatly hampered were it not for very simple technology that we call eyeglasses that were invented several centuries ago. So we can be appreciative, I think, of the goods of technology. We can be appreciative of the, of the genuine ways in which it has improved the human condition, been conducive to human flourishing. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the point would be to, to ask, to be, to be aware of the fact that that is not a necessary outcome, right? It, it is not necessarily the case that every new technology will be an, an unalloyed good for the human condition. And that, and that very often, uh, we don't get a clear set of pros and cons, if you like, right? Yeah. But that there's something slightly more complicated uh, in our experience, right? So I talk about time often when I when I talk about technologies because I think this is a salient example. It's one that's distant enough to appear sort of you know novel. People don't often think about this. We tend to think that time is just something everybody experiences in exactly the same way. But if we may have had the opportunity to step into a different culture where we realize, oh, they, they're not experiencing time in quite the same way as we do. I, and I, my we here is, of course, in the United States where everything is very regimented. Schedules are very important. We're anxious if we're not precisely on on time to our meetings. By the, the way, very, Michael, I, by the way, in this case, you pay to live in Ireland where everyone is perennially late. Everyone. Uh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, you, you have a meeting at nine o'clock and it kind of meanders into half nine, quarter past nine. John, my, uh, my oh, august go. colleague in arms here, is a notoriously bad timekeeper. And poor old JM, who is our Canadian producer. The Canadians are anal about many things and time is one of them. So God love me, he's been living in Ireland for a while. This is a cultural difference because, but I want to make an important point, culture matters. Yes, yes. Culture forms right. us. Culture right. is us. And technology forms culture, right? And vice versa. It's a dialectic relationship, right? It's not that that technology is a uh, determinative force that dictates the course of culture. They, they, they intermingle, they interplay in very interesting ways. But I sometimes talk about technology as the, the material infrastructure of our moral lives, or we might say the material infrastructure of our cultural lives. So the introduction of mechanical timekeeping devices in, in the late Middle Ages 
And then the availability of these as pocket watches, as things that people can keep on their person, those I think did considerably alter the way that we think about time and experience time. And it can have psychological consequences. It could have consequences for for our state of being, right? Someone who who is fixated on, on time in a certain way may as a consequence grow anxious. To be able to measure something, of course, is always a proxy for an attempt to control it, to manage it, uh, which can have its own derangements. And even the sense that time is something that we're losing and constantly wasting or measuring our inability to, to, to have a rightly ordered relationship to time. These things, they matter. And, and my, my point is often not to say, look, the clock is bad or good, right? It's to say it matters. It has shaped how we live. It's shaping how we think. And I would say my point is not to tell anybody how to live, but to encourage them to consider how they would want to live and then to to think about how technology is interacting with that aspiration, with that desire for what they might think of as the good life, rather than just assume that their tools are neutral. Because very often, I think what, what ends up happening is that we have our aspirations for the kind of lives we want to lead, the kind of people we want to be, and we are inattentive to the ways in which our, our technologies are sometimes subtly, sometimes very obviously hampering, undermining, or possibly in some cases supporting, sustaining uh, those, you know, pursuit of those desires. Michael, can you give me an example of where the technology and the yearning to live a good life? I mean, I was reading, you were, you were talking about the idea of the Sabbath of Sunday. I, you know, I'm oh, again, in, in, in this country, I'm old enough to remember in Ireland where shops did not open on a Sunday, full stop. I also lived in Germany many, many years ago where shops not only didn't open on a Sunday, but shops in Germany closed at half past 11 on a Saturday and didn't open until Monday morning. Every shop in Germany. And this is a comes from somewhere very, very deep in our culture. There would be a big movement of Sabbatarians here many years ago who just wouldn't do anything on, on a Sunday. You were writing, was this is a sort of a, a need for humans to stop, to actually step out from the commercial world, to step out from the mercantile world, to step out from the working world and contemplate. And this is something deep within us. How do you see technology changing that ability to be absent from? Yeah, I, you know, this to get back to the metaverse for a moment, when I wrote about it in September, the thing that struck me the most saliently about, about visions for the metaverse is they're being sold. Uh, and, and I would say there, there are probably various visions for what the metaverse ought to be, right? But but the one that, that Facebook is, is selling, the one that's most obviously before us in, in the tech discourse right now, it's essentially just an extension of the commercial realm. We have it now a new virtual realm into which our commercial activities can extend. And so that's why those, those lines of thought about the, the old practices of the Sabbath, the idea that there ought to be limits to this. And, and again, as I, I mentioned there, I buy things, we all buy things. It's not that buying things is bad. It's not, I want to get paid for my services, et cetera. But ought there to be parameters around that, right? Or do we simply allow the commercial sphere to colonize the whole of our experience? And I, and I think obviously tech companies have a vested interest in that being the case. I, I remember as well when commercial activity was was limited in my experience as a child, stores were closed early on Sundays. What I oppose to that, it, it, you know, as a, as a matter of, of contrast, is the fact that I can wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning 
and on my phone, Vanity Fair opens before me, right? So the uh, some of your listeners may remember uh, the old Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan, the English uh, Protestant, mm-hmm. uh, wrote that in the 17th century. And in it, Vanity Fair, uh, modeled on the old, old Renaissance medieval fairs, was always open, right? And it was a, I mentioned in that piece, it was the most violent episode in Pilgrim's Progress happens there. And I think that already... Uh, gives us some sense of, of the wariness that, that that tradition had about the dominance of commercial life. And so Vanity Fair is always in our pockets now, right? We never escape it. More and more realms of experience are subject to commercialization, to economic rationality, if you like. Even, this gets a, a little bit deeper into, into the weeds, but I think of the rise of virtual goods or NFTs, Right, which can be purchased and displayed in the metaverse. This yes. is one of the things that is the the, the feature of the metaverse is it's sold. It's just a, another layer of commercialization, right? Another layer of of putting a price on something, measuring something, displaying goods, as if we had kind of tapped out the material uh, realm for such purposes, and now need to kind of expand it into a, a new virtual realm. But beyond behind all, all that, of course, is, is the imperative that we that we buy, that we consume, uh, that we understand ourselves primarily as consumers whose reason for being is simply to promote the growth of the economy. Uh, and I think in, in a lot of ways, our corporate designed technologies have that in view. It's almost like baked in. That's the assumption. That's the underlying moral assumption is that we consume, therefore we are. And as opposed to our historical legacy that we take from our ancestors, which are defined by or at least characterized by moments of opting out, because opting out is quite good, because opting out allows you to live a different life. So before we go, Michael, where do you think this is going? I could say that the United States always tends to be a few iterations ahead in these cycles of Europe. Europe tends to be much more grounded by ideas of opting out and ideas of the welfare state hopefully not necessitating you know 60 hour weeks etc mm-hmm. so the the yeah. idea of family life time is maybe more important to Europeans but America tends to lead and we tend to follow where do you think it's all leading us you know because had you said maybe five years ago that Facebook, would morph from a social media technology into at least what Mr. Zuckerberg seems to to think of a way of life. Mm -hmm. He said, nah, bullshit, that won't happen. You know, at the the moment Mm -hmm. I'm talking to my mate in Australia on Facebook, that's that's all it is. It's a communicative device. So, Mm -hmm. you know, is there any way of slowing this down? Is there any way of controlling the beast in a way? Mm-hmm. The tech critic is always faced, and I use that term not, not again to highlight the fact that you know, negative criticism, but just the person who wants to think about technology as it's unfolding uh, is always faced with the challenge of, uh, on the one hand, not underestimating the consequences of particular technology, but at the, uh, on the other hand, not buying into the hype of the tech companies who want to sell it, right? And so I'm, I'm hesitant to make uh, predictions, but I, I, I wonder whether the vision that Facebook has presently presented to us about what the metaverse is going to be, a kind of clunky virtual reality experience. Microsoft has has shown some glimpses of of that on their own end as well. I find it difficult to see that that's going to be widely appealing. Uh, So I'm not sure that we have yet seen the the iteration of the so-called metaverse, if any of that sort of materializes, 
that will that will catch on. I'm reminded of how Google Glass kind of came suddenly onto the the scene and then just as quickly was bid farewell for for a host of reasons. And so we may not be talking about the metaverse in the same way in a year, but I think that the you know that depends upon the quality of the underlying technology, how effortlessly people might be able to use VR glasses, how well that might integrate with their ability to kind of walk down the street and 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 see information presented to them in a way that's appealing. And those questions are technical questions in some respects. And so it's hard to know how that plays out. But I think the point is, is that the drive will be to further commercialize our lives. And my sense has been that there is a growing resistance to that. And maybe this is just a wishful thinking on my part. But I, I think that those who are willing to question the assumptions about whether technologies are always benign, what they are doing to us, there, there's a critical mass that I think is growing. And in some respects, maybe aspects of, of the pandemic have, have highlighted this that have led us to ask this question, what is the good life and how do I pursue it? Rather than assuming that the vision sold to us by the sort of dominant tech economic uh, powers is the good life and we need to pursue what they sell us. And so if we can at least you know, in, invert that to question technology and to question its relationship to, to what we want and desire for ourselves and for our neighbors, uh, I think that'll be a gain that will be a kind of break perhaps on how these technologies, consumer technologies are deployed. Michael, I think that is a very profound, almost sort of, it's, it's a bit like when, when we were kids, we used to go to mass and priests used to come up with sermons after the gospel. And about once every eight or nine weeks, they were kind of interesting. Most of the time they were <laughs> awful, right? And you think, oh man, just um, get over it. But every now and then they'd say, they'd talk about the good life and they would talk about how you live your life and where you see yourself and how you fit into the world. And I think that over the course of the next while, we should have more conversations about stuff like this. So brilliant. Okay, Michael, yeah, thank you so yeah. much. Thanks, Michael. Thank Bye. Thank you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right, so Michael there, John, was talking about, and I think it's a really fascinating idea. We start about the Angelus. Right, so there was a long time ago. Time goes slowly <laughs> in this state. But the idea was that the right to opt out of the world, the right not to be present, the right not to be seen, the right to say, you know what? I'm not part of this. Yeah. It's really profound for many, many people. And of course, the world that the metaverse envisages is the whole community involved in some kind of corporate shakedown really it just this this might seem a bit luddite i'm not sure but it just seems to yes, me that whole thing of you know always on thing you know kids anxiety Forget kids adults too but actually you're right you adults. know has gone through the roof particularly during the the pandemic you know any psychologist would tell you you need time out from yeah. technology well you know it's a phenomenal thing and let's conclude there you know behavioral economics fascinating study of economics where economics and psychology come together and what you find that what actually affects people isn't your absolute position in society what you have who you are what you look like what your job is what your prospects are who your lover is all those things right mm. what actually impacts on people's well-being is the contrast between what you have and what somebody else has so nobody ever sees their world as an absolute. Am I absolutely happy? Am I content with my life, mm. etc.? You always see it in comparison to somebody else. Yeah. So yeah. contrast is profoundly important for people. And one of the problems with the expansion of all these networks, whether the metaverse, or the internet, or whatever, or this third version of the internet, is that it makes the benchmarking of you vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. You no longer benchmark yourself, as we did when we were kids, against the person across the road. Mm. So you're But well, you were across the road. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so you were really lucky. You said, that the Egypt's are across the road. You know, now you benchmark yourself against everybody. Yeah. So the person across yeah. the road is no longer right. your comparator. It's... The person across the road in the bigger house with the bigger car with the this that and the other and what the metaverse is doing is it's bombarding people with contrasts between themselves and the rest of the world now normally in politics and economics if the contrast between you and the rest of the world is enormous you do something about it you vote for the left you support a revolution you say i'm going to change the world the big fear is that if the metaverse leads to people who are actually falling back in society, not protesting about reality, but creating a different parallel universe in which they are the king mm. and they are the unique person, right? All that type of social momentum to change the world gets subjugated in this deadening second life. And that's kind of terrifying. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. 
We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz, follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.